to Afraid Not Podcast with Jill McCormick and Robin Wall. We believe that our stories matter and make us who we are. Every other week, we invite guests to join us and share their stories. Even though our stories have nots, we are not afraid. Our stories are afraid. They are not perfect. We believe the truth of our mess makes us stronger. We hope that God uses these stories to encourage and strengthen your faith as you trust in Him. Our theme verse is Colossians 1, 17, which says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, even our frayed knots. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Jill McCormick. And I'm Robin Wall. And you're listening to Afraid Not. This is episode number 77 with Emily Freeman. Emily is an absolutely amazing person, truly. She is a wife, a mom of seven. Yes, you heard me correctly, seven. She is really a fantastic example of a godly woman. Uh, She and her husband, Jeremy, have been at First Baptist Church Newcastle for a long time. Jeremy's the senior pastor there, and they have been through some of the most difficult times that, that you could even imagine, and their faith in the Lord has not been shaken. In fact, their faith in the Lord is stronger. And you might have heard of Ken Freeman, who's her father-in-law, and he's an evangelist, and if you've been to youth events, you've probably heard him speak. Um, She is going to talk about some serious heavy things with her children, one of them that had an immune disorder that um, caused him to lose his life, and then one who is in a horrible car accident. So um, this is a heavy one, but there is hope in it, and there there is, you can see God all through it. So listen in. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. We are so happy to welcome you to Afraid Not, and we appreciate what a time sacrifice it is for you uh, with all of the things that you have going and juggling, and we just thank you so much. Would you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? We'll start with that. All right. Um, Well, yes. So, um, you said I'm, my name's Emily Freeman and, um, basically am married to Jeremy Freeman, who's the pastor of first Baptist Newcastle. Um, we have seven children. Um, our oldest is 21 years old and she's in nursing school. And then our youngest is five years old in kindergarten. So (laughs) we have a full range of things going on at our house all the time. (laughs) So, Okay. And tell us a little bit about how you met Jeremy. Okay. So we met in college. We both went to Oklahoma Baptist university. And, um, so honestly, my first, I don't, I guess the word's not impression, but the first I heard of Jeremy people or some girls in my dorm came up and said, have you met the guy that has the cross shaved in the back of his head? And, (laughs) (laughs) or I was like, no, but he sounds interesting. And anyway, uh, not too long after that, I did end up meeting him because we were both on a, um, the welcome week steering committee. So it's, it's kind of a committee of people that are in charge of welcoming, you know, the new freshmen to, um, OBU. And so 
I met him and we were just friends for uh, probably a couple of years, but then um, started dating. And it was my junior year at OBU that we ended up getting married. And then I actually had my first uh, child, Brittany, two weeks after I graduated from OBU. So, wow. <laughs> yes. That was so, a little time. So, you were able to do your classes, your finals. <laughs> yes. <Wow. laughs> yes. There were, I was very big when I walked across that stage. And <laughs> we had friends that were taking bets on whether I would make it. <laughs> so, yes. I'm also an OBU alum and I oh I have such a fondness in my heart for OBU. What a fun, great school. Um, and did you and Jeremy live in the student married student housing on campus? Um, no, we actually um, had an apartment off campus. So okay. when we got married, they were called Ashford Place Apartments and um, they were like a mile down the road. And way back, this is, I can't even remember exactly what year it would have been, but when my husband, Chris, Chris Wall, as the youth minister of Council Road Baptist Church, he reached out to Jeremy and Jeremy was the intern for how long was, did you also intern? Did you both? He was the intern. I was finishing school. So it was my senior year. So actually that was the time where I was, you know, um, pregnant and trying to do school. And he was driving back and forth to council road. So I was there, but not as much, you you know, as as I would have been. (laughs) You're a little busy. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But, um, but yes, I remember that um, many people from that youth group and just, it was, it was his first, you know, kind of in ministry, getting more involved and having more of a role in that. So I almost forgot about that time, (laughs) honestly, like until you brought it up, I'm like, wow, yes, council road days. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. That would be before children for you. And and I probably had maybe two little ones by then, but anyway, what fun memories to reflect on. So um, maybe one thing that would be a great starting point in our story tonight is, would you share about how you met Christ and what, how old were you when you gave him your heart? Um, so I was young. I was uh, seven years old, actually. And I was um, raised in a household that was very much centered on Jesus. And so I kind of had that posture in my life you know, from the beginning, as far as, you know, um, turning from sin, turning to Jesus. And so, um, I never had, I didn't have that, you know, big dramatic moment of, um, transformation that was more visible or, you know, like life altering because I was just, but it's, it's funny. Cause when you, I feel like many, and my grandfather was the pastor of first Baptist Seminole. So, I feel like many people in my situation come to a place later where they're like, um, I can't really remember every detail of that. Am I certain that I, you know, you know, and, and they can't necessarily think, remember the details. So I, I remember going through that time later and it's funny, Robin, you may or may not remember this, but at Falls Creek, um, it was many, many years, but you were there because you also, <laughs> you were also my mom at Super Summer. At oh my goodness, I forgot <laughs> that. I know. Oh, how fun. it's all coming back. It's all coming back now. <laughs> so, 
So, um, but yes, because that's back in the days that um, you were Miss, uh, whatever, Miss. Uh, <laughs> Miss National Team. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. National Team. We'd like to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So I was like very kind of enamored, like with you, I thought you were pretty Aww. amazing. So you are uh, for sure. But that time I was just like, oh, so anyway, I ended up talking to you a little bit about that too. But at Falls Creek, I had kind of a moment of, do I need to, you know, solidify this? But God just really confirmed in, in me that, that I did belong to him and it wasn't had anything to do with me or what I had said or not said or felt or not felt. It was all about, you know, Jesus, what he did and that my faith was completely in him every single day. So, um, anyway, but so besides that, I've just, my life has pretty much been one of just, um, following not perfectly, but seeking, you know, kind of striving to follow Jesus from, from age seven, uh, yeah. I would say so. Yes. And I, I, from the outside looking in and knowing just the little bits and pieces that I do, I have, um, been aware of, there have been some really, really difficult times that the Lord in his sovereign, his ways that are higher than our ways he has allowed in, in your heart. And I know that they have not been easy. A lot of them have been wonderful times, but some really, really difficult ones too. And so we would love for you to share your story with us. And as we listen, we can just keep in mind that the faithfulness that God has shown to you, he offers to all of us. So please do tell us your story and we would love to hear it. Okay. So I think I'll start, um, just growing up. I, uh, I had um, two brothers that were born without immune systems. It's basically the severe combined immunodeficiency. Um, if you've ever seen the movie um, called The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, um, yes. basically it's it's that you're born without any ability to fight infection or, um, and when they were born, it's a long story with a lot of details, but my the older of the two, um, ended up being about a, almost a year old before they diagnosed what he had. And that's a whole nother set of <laughs> circumstances where the, where God just intervened. And, and that's the reason he's still here because usually when you're born with an out an immune system and you don't know, um, you, you just, you, you don't live more than six months because you have no ability to fight any bacteria infection, anything. So he was really, really sick by the time they knew what he had and, and how to treat that. So he had three bone marrow transplants. Um, and then my, my other brother was born with the same thing. At this point, they didn't know that it was a genetic disease and it had never been, uh, or not that they had known in my family before. So it was a new thing. So, so my brothers were two of the first unmatched bone marrow transplants that they even did. And so we had like on the news and all that kind of stuff. So they made it. Um, and so life with them was a little, I mean, there were challenges there because they had to be very careful. Um, you know, just went through a lot of difficult things that, they're just more prone to being sick. And so just a different mindset really. And my parents, as my sister and I grew up, so there were four of us, um, 
we, they were really good about, um, like we were sheltered from that quite a bit. Like we didn't really know how hard that was and really how, uh, just their lives were not, um, there, there were many times where I feel like they, they could have, you know, not, um, they could have stepped into eternity, (laughs) I guess, you know, it was just a, um, their lives were not as certain, um, and their health concerns. There were, there were times I remember, especially my older brother, Matt, he was in a wheelchair for a while. Um, it just, there were just many different seasons. So all of that growing are, up, are you older or younger? I'm the oldest. Okay. So me, and where does your sister fall? She's next. So then it was brother and then brother. So they were both born with it. So it's X linked. So basically, um, the females carry the gene, but only the males can, can, um, get the okay. disease. Right. And it's all, our family's been a big genetic project too. Like they always did everything, the research and, and things, because it was, it's, it's very new as far as being diagnosed and treated. So, um, so I, so just, you know, kind of fast forward, my brothers make it to adulthood and they both get married and, um, are living fairly normal, um, relatively normal lives. And I, um, in the meantime, you know, we start to have a family, you know, uh, Jeremy and I, like we said, Brittany was born two weeks after I graduated, but which she was a girl. So there wasn't even an issue. They didn't know that I was a carrier of this gene until I was pregnant with my second child, Caleb. And so he was born uh, healthy. He did not have the gene. And so, um, that was a huge relief and just were, we're very thankful for that. Then Clayton, my third one ended up having the gene. And again, it's all still very like new and, um, navigating through all that and figuring out what to do. So Clayton was born in Los Angeles, California, and he spent his first seven months in the hospital there. And he received, yeah, he received a transplant from my husband, Jeremy. It was, um, like a half matched stem stem cell transplant. So at that point, Brittany and Kayla, my oldest two were maybe three and two years old. (laughs) So we moved to Los Angeles for that seven month period of time. And that, yeah, (laughs) I know it's when I, when I think back about it, I'm like, I don't really know that time is a blur. I know it was one day at a time for sure. Um, which has been the theme of much of life for sure. Um, but, uh, that Clayton was in a bone marrow unit. So it was, you couldn't even spend the night in the hospital. Like you had to gown and glove and mask and all of that. So it was very, um, you know, just very little contact. Like you couldn't really like we weren't really able to touch, touch him until he was kind of in the clear. So, um, so anyway, we came home from Los Angeles and he, uh, did fine. He's done fine. He is now, um, 18 years old. And so his immune system has been strong and, you know, even his doctors would say, you know, you can treat him like he has a normal immune system. So after Clayton and going through all that, we decided that we would probably not have any more (laughs) children just because we did have the risk of, you know, that. And so, um, I, let's see, Clayton was born in 2003 
in 2006, um, I got pregnant again, even though we were, you know, not trying and we were using <laughs> something to, you know, supposedly prevent that. But um, anyway, uh, found out we were like, okay, surely it's not going to be a boy with the immune deficiency. Maybe the odds will be, you know, in our favor. Um, and sure enough, found out it was a boy, found out he also was infected with the gene. And so the only, the difference, um, in this time was that my oldest daughter, Brittany was actually a perfect match for Trey. And so that's extremely rare. It's not like just having the same blood. It's like having seven different points in your blood match the person. So we were, yeah, it was a big deal. Like when the doctor called us and said we had a perfect match, it was, it was a game changer. (laughs) So, um, so Brittany donated bone marrow for Trey when he was maybe a month old. And we went to, um, because we had a perfect match, we went to actually uh, Dallas, uh, for treatment. And so we were there for about four months Oh, and a brave little girl that she began yeah. to do that. So yes. brave. Yeah. Well, I will say when Jeremy took her out to dinner and told her that um, was one person in our family was a match for the baby and had the chance to help him, she she definitely started crying. <laughs> she, <laughs> she was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> But then she was also very willing to help her brother. Just that initial, like, you know, um, mm-hmm. but she was in kindergarten when that wow. happened. So, yes. So she was actually my youngest uh, Addie's age now. So that's crazy to think about. But so okay. she donated bone marrow. Um, that went well. It was successful. We were able to go home and Trey lived a normal life. Um, he had a few things here and there, um, where he'd have to have just some, uh, just some boosters of like the, uh, IVIG, which is what they give people with immune deficiency. And so, but nothing, you know, he was, he was very healthy, very, um, energetic, just, I mean, he was, he was an awesome, awesome little guys we always joke that he was the best of, us just personality wise and, you know, all of that. So he was, let's see, uh, six years old when, um, he started to get sick and and run fever. And I will back up just a little bit to say that my, my mom, who, um, was always a huge help in all of this, but she was diagnosed with breast cancer when Clayton was in Los Angeles. So when we were doing the um, the seven months out there, that's when she received her, um, initial diagnosis of breast cancer. So that's when that started. Um, so by the time we got Trey, uh, home and he was, uh, for those next six years, she had been in, uh, remission. So (laughs) getting the timeline, right. It was 2012 that Trey started to get sick. And also that same time was when her cancer was returning in the bone and the, like, um, had it had spread. So, um, so those were, those were both going on at the same time. Um, my sister, uh, who, um, also went to OBU and we're really close. Um, she 
also carries the gene <laughs> that we discovered. So um, she had uh, two girls and then she had a boy and that boy did have immune deficiency. That's Brady. And um, he's 10 years old now. Um, and then she had another one named Toby. And so he was born that year of 2012. So 2012 to 2013, he was actually born in 2013 at the beginning of the year. And so that's kind of the period of time where things kind of a, I would look back and say that was a really tough, like that was a valley <laughs> for sure. And so Trey was sick off and on for that entire um, year, just battling. And the doctors figured out early on that it was actually Brittany's cells um, that had been donated from that initial bone marrow transplant that for some reason had decided to attack his body, which is really, really rare because if that's going to happen, it usually happens within, you know, weeks or months of a transplant, like not six or seven years after. <laughs> so they don't really, I think, know why that happened. Um, and so it was, he was a, a very rare, it was a very rare situation that they were trying to figure that out too. So they did everything that they, you know, could, um, they actually had Brittany do another transplant. So she donated bone marrow again. And she was, um, you know, this time she was 12. And so, um, she did that and they started from scratch, basically did chemotherapy and, um, then put her cells in. And then for a time we thought that that was successful, um, and he even came home. Um, and so we were just, um, recovering. He had been on so many different medications and, and things. So his body was just, there was a lot that he was, had endured and, um, he ended up starting to get fevers again. And when he did that, we just knew that it was back. And so sure enough it was, and it was, um, you know, back with kind of a vengeance and, so spike pretty high. Yes. Um, he, he would, he would have really high fevers and, um, heart, you know, beats and stuff. So I would say probably the highest his temperature got was like one Oh seven something. Oh, like wow. oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, and so then just some other things he there, he was on a lot of steroids because there was, you know, trying to suppress those cells and things. So, and then at one point, the, um, the cells, they weren't in his blood as much, but they kind of moved out into his skin. So he had like this rash that was really like, if you looked at it, you would think it's like third degree burns. Like it looks so horrible, like over his entire body. And then, um, they did all these things to try to treat that. Like so many different treatments that Trey went through. When I think back of it, I'm, I mean, when I think on it, I'm just like, I, I have no idea. He, he was so, um, supernaturally just <laughs> good through all that. I mean, he, he just did not complain. And he, I mean, I know that was just part of God's mercy, but he, he just had a very good attitude through the whole thing. Cause he was in the hospital over 250 days that year. And, um, oh, goodness. yeah. And so it was, it was a long and, you know, it's, it's one thing it's, it's when you're going through hard things, but it, when it's your child, it's a whole different thing because you're just working on helping them, you know, to get through it and to, uh, be strong. And so you almost just have to ignore 
how it's affecting you personally because right. you're, you know right. you're just focused on your child and you're in survival mode. Yes, yes. So, so anyway, um, there's there's just so much through that. I will I'll tell you the highlight or the two nights in the hospital probably most significant in my mind um, from when I was there. And one was um, when he was. So he was uh, still six years old because it was Janu- January, um, and it was uh, January the eighth, and so he was um, in his hospital bed, and I was kind of over on the side, laying on the little hard <laughs> thing that they have for you to sleep on, and Trey had a really hard time sleeping too a lot of the time. So you just look over, and he was. He, like I said, he didn't complain or fuss about it, but he would just be laying there and just thinking. And he thought a lot, like he was very, he's very mature for his age, probably because he was having to go through a lot of hard things. So, um, I just, uh, I got out of bed cause I woke up like it was about 11 o'clock or something. And I went over and I was like, Trey, or, you know, are you awake? And, and you could just tell he had been kind of thinking he, um, would kind of slump over his pillow because his skin was all, you know, so it, to get comfortable. So he was kind of in this position and just kind of laying there. And, um, and so I said, um, he just, he looked at at me and just said, um, you know, mom, uh, am I going to die? You know, just ask me that question. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, (laughs) you know, like dagger in your, um, in every part of you really. And so I was, I said, you know, Trey, I, I don't know uh, when any of us are, you know, are going to die. Like, I don't know. I know it won't be until God, you know, it's uh, not until he's done and you're done here on this earth or, you know, his plan for you is, is, you know, and so we talked about that and he said, he said, well, but I'm not a Christian, you know, and Trey was, um, you know, he was the younger of siblings. And so up to this point, he, he had heard about, you know, heard the gospel and everything, but his motivation usually had been, he wanted to have a spiritual birthday because we would celebrate those with our other kids and kind of a big deal. And that was his thing. Like, I want to have a spiritual birthday. Like, so we kind of knew that by that, that it wasn't time (laughs) for him, but, um, on this night he was, you know, not talking about that kind of thing at all. He was just more thinking, I think about his life, his little life, you know, his, his seven, six, seven years. Uh, and so, um, I said, uh, you know, do, do, do you want to be a Christian? You know, do you want to follow after the, after Jesus? And he was like, um, yes. And so we talked about, you know, all of that being a sinner and turning from your sin, putting your trust in Jesus. And he connected with, um, the idea of Jesus being the boss of his life. And um, because Lord was kind of, you know, a concept that was harder. So we talked about him being the boss and that was something that really made sense to him and that he wanted to do. He wanted to make Jesus the boss of his life. So, um, so we prayed together and, um, he was crying. And so then we, I called Jeremy and, um, he told him, told his dad that he made that decision. And so, um, later I was priceless Priceless moment. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so, um, when I laid back down, he kind of, he said, mom. And I was like, yeah. 
And he said, um, did you see that I was crying? And I said, yes. And I said, that's okay. And he was like, well, th those are happy tears. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, I'm crying happy tears too. So, um, but anyway, so that moment, and then Trey really showed a, a growth in his life. I would say he spent a lot of time with his little Bible. Um, he would just copy verses out of it. Um, he would, you know, his um, nurses and doctors would come in and he would ask them questions like, do you, you know, do you know the Lord? Is he your boss? Like very, you know, bold childlike. Um, and so it got me into some interesting conversations because we had like a atheist doctor, a couple of Jewish doctors, um, the nurses, there were some that were believers, but many that weren't. So Trey opened up a lot of <laughs> doors. He's an evangelist. Yes. Yes. So he really, he really did. He was, he was not, um, hesitant about talking about Jesus and the fact that he now had a spiritual birthday too. So, um, and so uh, that was in January. So, he came home again in February and, uh, they had a big, you know, uh, the town, like our town of Newcastle came out, welcomed him home. Um, we were hopeful that he was gonna, you know, be able to stay home and recover. Uh, we were making plans to have a, another transplant that were going to be, it was going to be a unrelated donor that was still a perfect match, but someone other than Brittany. So we actually had that person um, lined up. <laughs> so um, we were kind of trying to get his body in a place where it was strong enough and healthy enough to do that. But these cells, I mean, just it, they were pretty relentless. And so you would knock them down with some strong, like, chemo drugs or things like that. And they would just, they would only stay down briefly and it, they just really wouldn't give us a good opportunity. So we told the doctors that we wanted to fight till the end and we wanted to do everything humanly possible. And we did, but it was my I sister's little, yeah, my little uh, nephew, Toby, who was born, he ended up being at the same hospital that Trey was at because he was, um, he was having the same, you know, um, immune deficiency and they were doing the treatment for him. Um, and then he was supposed to come home and actually it was about a week before he was supposed to come home. Like everything was set in his, all of a sudden one night, he just, he started crying and then it was a weird cry. And so they ended up taking him down to the ICU and it's like his lungs just gave out, I guess they put him on the ECMO. And so my sister was there and we, um, you know, had to say goodbye to Toby and mm -hmm. Trey was still, you know, I think it was, it was especially hard for him because, you know, he watched Toby have to go down to the ICU and then he never was able to come back. And so that was a very just, you know, hard and Toby was 85 days old. So when that happened. So that, yeah, that happened in like June, July is when, um, he did. And then my mother who had been battling off and on and just bless her because so much with both of her girls having boys that are going through this, you know, in the hospital and she's, she's wanting to be helpful, but her, you know, her cancer was just also. And so she ended up, um, she was, she was able to go to Toby's, um, sell, you know, his homegoing service. Um, but then, uh, a couple is about a month later on August 18th. That's when she 
um, you know, she lost her <laughs> battle against the, um, the cancer. So, um, and, uh, I, I still remember, you know, like I was talking to her on the phone and was coming back that next day because we knew that it was really close. And then I didn't make it because she, during the night, she just in her sleep, which was a blessing really, because it was like, they thought she would be on hospice for a while still and do all that, but she just, you know, and so, um, so I did not quite make it back for to, to, but I was able to talk to her on the phone and she was able to tell me, you know, that she loved me and then, sorry. <laughs> um, so then let's see. So September 1st is the day that, um, you know, Trey, it was, it was so like his battle, his journey was such a roller coaster. And so he would have good days and bad days. Well, that weekend, um, I went home because, um, we went to an OU game with the older kids and my dad uh, was staying with Trey. And, uh, so as I was home, the nurses called us and on Friday morning, before I left, I remember the doctor making rounds, the doctors came to me. They said, this is how um, I like to see Trey. Like he looks good. You know, like, I feel like he's kind of, and so, you know, went away feeling pretty good about him that he was, you know, at least stable. And so um, that Saturday night, um, it was like two in the morning and uh, Jeremy and I got a call. She just said that, um, you know, I think you all need to get down here because he's not, he's not doing good. Um, and he was on, uh, they were giving him a blood transfusion and they really weren't sure. Um, they also had him on the really high flow uh, vapotherm, which is a high flow oxygen, which he had been on for a while. So that wasn't unusual, but, um, anyway, so we headed up there in the middle of the night and we left our kids at home cause we were thinking, okay. I mean, it's, he's probably, you know, in a, you know, kind of one of his bad, um, hard moments, but not like, you know, a final moment. And so, uh, we went up and then when we got there and looked at him, I, yeah, like I knew that, um, that we needed to get our other kids there. So, um, we, uh, our neighbor, Shauna Newthman, I don't know if you know Shauna Newthman, but she lived next door to us and she brought our children, um, up. And so they got there, I think around 11 o'clock. And so we, I didn't have Aubrey go in. She was the youngest, um, at the time. And, uh, I think just wasn't sure. It, I mean, he was bad. He looked really bad. If you, if you saw a picture of him and you saw like his normal picture, you would be, I mean, when you're, when you're in it every single day, you don't realize how, how bad the body is, but it, it had gotten to where, and when I look back at it now, I'm like, he absolutely needed a new body. Like there's just, we kept him here probably even longer, <laughs> like longer than his body should have been here really. Cause you know, that's just what you do. <laughs> so you, you hold on, but, um, so he, um, he was totally with us, even though he was on that high flow stuff, he, he could talk and interact and his mind was completely there. And so we're just sitting around him, you know, telling him all the things that we want to say and all the kids are saying what they want to say and just thinking this could be my last, you know, time to talk to Trey. And so we're all, and of course, Trey, um, you know, is still the smart little seven-year-old that he is. And so again, uh, he turns to us and, uh, Jeremy and I, and he's just like, 
um, am I about to die? <laughs> and I think everyone trying to talk to him, he just knew like what is going on. So, right. And, um, you know, Jeremy was like, just, he, he kind of froze and I did too, but it was one of those moments where the Holy spirit just completely took over because I'm way more emotional right now <laughs> than I was. Then I was fine. I was calm. I was a hundred percent just peaceful with him. And, um, I looked into his eyes and I just said, Trey, you are not about to die. I said, you are about to really live. And, um, he just, you know, sat back and it just like, let his breath go. And he was just kind of like, that was, he was content with that, you know, that answer. And, um, and then I actually just started singing to him and was able to do that perfectly and not perfectly because I can't sing, but in my own <laughs> attempt, I sang to him and I just sang the, that old song. I think it's a hymn, but it's just those words. My only hope is you, Jesus. My only hope is you from early in the morning till late at night, just sang that over. And, and then at some point I said, um, you know, is this vapotherm, this oxygen, is this what's keeping him here with us? I said, you know, we, we should, you know, turn that down and see how he does. Cause I don't want to, I mean, he, you know, he's, he's ready, um, you know, to, to be done with all of this. <laughs> so, um, basically um, they turned that down and gave him like a shot of morphine, I think. Oh my goodness. It wasn't even two minutes that he, um, you know, I just held him and uh, he just breathed his last. And so I think that that was just, then I think that was the hardest part because, you know, it was no longer like, you know, Trey, um, he's just, you know, no longer um, there and his body is still there. And we had to, you know, pack everything up um, in his room. Um, <laughs> and all of you were in the room together. Mm -hmm. So we just kind of packed everything up and he just, you know, um, laid there and then to leave, like to leave the room and the nurses, of course, they were, um, and they were so close to Trey. I mean, he had become, you know, family to them and they had nicknamed him super Trey because he was so, um, just strong and such a hero, um, on that unit. Um, so, um, they, they came in and said, you know, we're going to take good care of him and you need to go. And we just left and I was holding his little stuffed gorilla and, you know, just, <sighs> so we just walked out um, of that hospital that we had been, you know, there for so many, really was like a, another home, you know, but anyway, <laughs> but I think that was the hardest thing for me as a mom is just, I had been taking such care of him for so many days. I mean, more so than even your, your regular children, because he required so much. So just not being able to go with him and make sure he was still, I mean, I knew, um, and, and had the faith that he was with the Lord and that he was, um, made new and that he was not suffering, but 
I almost had that feeling of um, the panic that you have when you like feel like your child is missing or, right, <laughs> you right, know, right. Kind of the, um, and so, but um, so the, it was hard. I'm not going to say that we walked out of there going, oh, he's, you know, he's, he's with the Lord, you know, all things are, you know, the eternal perspective was there, but it was not something we've, you know, felt the whole time. It was, it was very hard. And I will say I went home and I just laid down and I was like, I'm like, this is dark. Like it just felt dark. And, uh, I still remember, like, I was just laying in my bed and I read, um, some things my mom had written down before she went to be with the Lord. And, um, because she wasn't able to talk as much, but she, she would still write things down. And I remember reading, um, one of her, the things that she'd written down was, um, never doubt in the darkness, what God has shown you in the light. And I, I can't remember who said that, but that was really a good moment for me of just helping me start to climb back out of that pit <laughs> of just grief and, and sadness was just remembering what is true and um, preaching that truth to my heart and focusing on that. And then as a family, just gathering together and saying, you know, this is, this is a tray, this pain, this overwhelming anguish, this torture, really all the things to describe what you never, like you can't even put into words, just how hard it is. But we took that and said, this is going to be something that we use to, as a motivation for us to finish strong on this earth, to be faithful, to, um, to honor Trey, but to also remember that he, what he endured and that we can endure one day at a time, you know, until we are with him again, until we are with Jesus. And so, um, you know, we just kind of decided as a family, we're just going to do the next right thing, like together, every one thing at a time. And at first it was just breathing, you know, you're like, I'm right. going to keep living. Um, and so that was just a period of time of just, like I said, preaching the truth to your heart and forcing yourself, you know, to keep on going. And, um, and so we one day at a time did that and slowly just, uh, kept on, you know, and, uh, so that was 2013. And so little by little, you learn to live with that piece of you gone. Um, and that hole that's like you're bleeding continually, but you just learn to bleed <laughs> and still live. And so, um, we just did that. Um, one day at a time. And it was amazing how God continued to use Trey and his story. And, you know, uh, Jeremy's dad is an evangelist. He shared Trey's story so much. And so many kids that I heard over and over again that had heard Trey's testimony and had decided to make Jesus their boss, you know, because they got to hear um, about Trey. And so just continually hearing the eternal impact also helped us keep an eternal perspective. And so, um, you know, time goes by and, um, you just keep going. And so, you know, then a year, then two. And so it was, um, I'd say <laughs> it's not that you come out of that valley and are on a mountain necessarily, but you, you kind of get level, <laughs> right. Right. Um, and so we had kind of leveled, leveled out with, with all of that. 
and uh, then it was in 2017 so four years later that November of that year my brother my youngest brother so I'm the oldest he's the youngest and he'd actually always been the healthier of my two brothers and he was married and had three little boys in Shawnee is where he lived and he had had some some uh, health issues and ended up getting this kind of virus in his gut that just he could not get rid of his immune system just would not um, fight it off and so he ended up um, that he was about to undergo another pretty serious treatment because they needed to do some kind of extraordinary things to help him. Um, so he kind of went, it wasn't sudden, but it was, it was kind of slow and, and sudden at the same time, if that makes sense. So um, he started to, to really struggle. And then November 5th of 2017, we got a phone call that, uh, that Daniel, had had died and it was a shock it was a complete shock because we didn't know that he was like you know that was just a so we went there and my uh his wife and three boys and just you know were with them and, and trying to process that and you know understand and um just help them and so we were um we were there for for them November 5th. So then December 18th, we were with her again. We went to, to Shawnee to have Christmas early with them and just kind of, we were still processing Daniel's, uh, the loss of Daniel, but we kind of tried to celebrate his life and just still um, celebrate Christmas with them. And so that was, um, I think a Monday night, but so we were all together and, um, and so my other kiddos like Brittany and, and Caleb is 16 at that time. And then, so it's 17, 16, 15, they're, they're close to get together in age. And so, um, and I actually <laughs> have kind of skipped over Luke and Addie, so I can kind of give them as a side note, we, we didn't end up adopting two little ones. And so they are now seven and almost six. And so that's a whole nother story, but that's a, that's a whole part of God's just sovereign plan in our lives, because I don't think we would have Luke and Addie, um, Trey kind of, well, his situation definitely introduced us to them, um, through circumstances that are kind of amazing, um, in our church and just through another little boy that was being fostered, that was, um, a half sibling to these two. So it's kind of a long story, but in other words, God, God kind of was orchestrating us to get Luke and Addie through another little boy that we thought maybe we should adopt this little boy who needs a home. Who's about Trey's age. Um, who kind of just showed up on the scene at our church. And we were like, <laughs> who is this? And he was a super big personality, but he, you'd think he and Trey were best friends, even though he never met him actually, but he talked about him all the time. So just through this, we went through the process of getting certified and then couldn't even adopt Andrew. And we were like, why did we even do that? Well, then like two years later, they called us that he had had a, a half brother born and the lady who adopted him was way too old to have a, like, she wasn't even going to adopt Andrew, but it was kind of just circumstances caused that to happen. And so 
they said, you know, you're kind of considered kinship to him because you are in his church and his community and you are his secondary care people, if that makes sense. That's a long story short. But um, so we ended up with Luke. And then 14 months later, the mom had another little one and we ended up with a four day old little girl and found out about her that day and went to pick her up. So that was like, boom, boom, Whoa. basically. Yes. And I do joke about it. Cause I, I was like, cause that happened. I, I mean, it's probably a year and a half, maybe after Trey um, went to be with the Lord. And so I do j- joke that Trey was like, you know, Lord, here's how you can make my mom keep getting out of bed. <laughs> Just send her these two babies and, you know, that will force her, that'll force her to keep on, you know, getting up. So anyway, but Luke and Addie have been huge. Uh, Luke came in at a time. He was just such a part of healing for my other kids and just so many ways. So really did God just gave us those gifts. And so, um, so yes, they're, they're in the picture too. And so we have our whole crew, um, in Shawnee at this, uh, Christmas thing. And so then we go home. Well, the next day is the big, the next big kind of just moment in our lives that, you know, just left us kind of, you know, wrecked, I guess. And so, um, Caleb was 16 and he and, uh, Clayton were driving to an OU basketball game. Um, and so it was raining a little bit and, uh, they, um, were, you know, they were going slow. They were being careful. Jeremy had warned them over and over again to be careful, so they were basically pulling onto the highway um, by the Riverwind Casino area, like merging onto Highway 9 and um, hydroplaned and spun out into the road. And so just at that moment, they ended up, you know, there was a pickup truck basically ended up horizontal across the road. And then the semi just it was going full speed in um, 75,000 pounds because it had its full weight and just right into Caleb's, you know, the driver's side. So basically full force. So it just hit him. And then I think it kind of drew back and then hit him again. And it just drove him into like the, the side of the thing. So we got that phone call. Um, you know, that's, your the worst, you know, your worst nightmare is that phone call. And it was, um, the guy who called was just had Caleb's phone and just said, you know, you need to get here. And we, we drove, um, crazy. It was just a crazy blur of how fast we just drove. And we weren't even aware of how serious the situation was. I think that in our minds, we're like, it's raining, it's wet. Probably he, you know, skidded into someone, you know, like a little, because there's no way he could have been going, you know, that fast, like he was being very cautious. So I think in our minds, we just were thinking, okay, this is, we were still panicked about it, but we also were thinking this isn't going to be like as serious as, as what it ended up being. So as we drove there, um, we kept talking to the guy that had the phone and we could hear Clayton, but Caleb, we couldn't, we kept asking and he would just be very vague about him. Like he's still breathing. You just need to, you know, get here. And so then we're starting to really be like, okay, get a little more concerned. And when we got there and saw the semi truck and his truck, and it was like, I mean, it really, 
it's hard to even go back and say, but like, I, I have no other expl- explanation, but that I feel like this semi truck hit him. Um, and like, God just kind of put his hand as a, like, as a, like a stopper right there, because, um, like the people they called the fatality team, they were trying to, you know, figure out if they could preserve Caleb's organs. Like it was that kind of thing. He was in an ambulance and they were trying to work on him. And we were talking to Caleb or Clayton, and then they sent us on to the ER. And at that point we are crying. (laughs) We are screaming. I am like, just, I can't even, it was just this anguish of, I can't believe this is happening. Like I need to wake up. Like I need to wake up right now because this can't be real. And I remember calling my dad and just being like, I don't, I don't think Caleb's alive. You know, I just, and so we were just crying out. We were just, I don't know. It was just chaos. It was chaos in our hearts and in our minds and just can't even really just out of body, definitely out of body experience. And so got to there and they had not arrived yet. And we were just in the waiting room. And so this lady, um, this, uh, African-American lady with a big coat and scarf and a bunch of kids around her. And I don't even know why she was there in the ER in the emergency room, but she just walked up to us. We were just kind of like, I feel like we were in shock. And so we were just kind of like standing there, like lost, like, I don't know what to do. And she just put her hands on us and she just started praying and she just prayed. And I just felt such peace (laughs) when she prayed. It was so, so crazy. I just, she prayed this prayer that I'm like, uh, she didn't know anything about what was going on with us, but it was like the perfect words of just truth. And so I kind of like, even though all of that was happening in those circumstances, and I just took a big, deep sigh of almost relief. It was weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're still waiting and she kind of moves on. And the next person who comes in is a lady named Jalinda and she walks up to us and she's got blood all over her. <laughs> and, uh, she just says, are you Caleb's parents? And said, yes. And she said, I want you to know that I was with your son. And, um, I, uh, I stopped the bleeding and I helped him, you know, helped find his airway, that kind of thing. And I, I want you to know that I prayed over Caleb from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And just, she said, the Lord has told me he's going to be okay. He's going to heal him. And we were like, you know, what do you like in that moment? You're like, I want to believe this, (laughs) you know? Um, but I also just saw that and I, and I heard that. And so you're, you basically have this, this one set of physical things you can see and this other set of maybe what you cannot see, but you are believing because you feel this at the same time, this piece of, you know, this is the Lord, like this is. And so, um, so then they brought Caleb in and we just, we kept here, like, we were just trying to hear, we weren't allowed to go back there for a long time. And, um, we would just hear things. And my sister-in-law, uh, is a nurse. One of my brothers and my older brother, the, the older of the two is married to a nurse. And so she was able to go back there and stuff. And just kept talking about, well, he's 
like they didn't expect him to make it, but he made it to the hospital. But then it was all about his posturing, which is apparently a horrible thing if you have a brain injury, because it's just the sign that your brain, it's almost like your brain, brain dead, kind of like the posturing. Yeah. It just, and so, um, so there was that going on and we were hearing that. And then at one point, Jeremy pulled one of the nurses aside and just said, listen, I need you to level with me. Like, I need you to tell me like what's going on with, with my son. She was like, sir, I, I, all I can tell you is that at this point we need a miracle. And so we just kind of <laughs> were like, and so Jeremy texted out to people just pray. Like, this is what they're saying. Like they don't expect him to make it. Um, and then he just said, you know, but God, like those were his words. And so that is where the phrase, but God came from in our, in this whole journey, um, was when he, he, uh, texted all that. And just that became like, as people were sharing all of that, it was, that's how they were sharing it. They were like, but God, but God has the final say, but God is in control of the situation. Um, and so, when we were able to go behind the screen and see Caleb, he was very, you know, he had, it's what another just amazing thing about him is he did not have a single broken bone, like not one, not his pinky finger, not his spine, not his, I mean, they had no explanation for that because like, if you're hit by a semi-truck, just in general, you usually at least break all your extremities. Right. there was just not even a single broken bone. He, the blood that had was coming from his, he lost this half of his top ear, his left ear. And so the blood was coming from there, but it wasn't even like his, you know, skull fractures. No. So, but he had the brain injury, which was really the worst kind of brain injury that you can have because it's um, it's a DAI, which is, uh, diffused axonal injury. And it's basically like scrambled, shaken, like just the whole thing, the brain stem, every part of it is just basically all scrambled up. <laughs> so, um, so, so we get through the, you know, this initial emergency room and we get put on to the ICU and the guy doctor comes in and he meets with Jeremy and I, and he's like, we're going to put a drain in his head. We're going to try and get the swelling down, but he's just kind of like, we're doing that. But I mean, it's just very clear to us that he doesn't expect Caleb to, to respond to that or for it to help, you know, like, it's just, we're doing this, but it's just a, you know, and so, but we're kind of like, I think he's going to be okay <laughs> because we talked to Jalinda and we, <laughs> talk, you know, and I, so it's very much like, I, I'm like, I can't really explain this. And I, I hear what you're saying to me, but at the same time, I really feel like Caleb's going to be okay. You know? So it's really, it's weird. <laughs> so I, I want to tell you that another little part of the, the periphery of all while those hours were happening the ripple effects of prayer mm. were going further than you and Jeremy probably ever could have imagined like mm. through my dear friend Melanie who attends your church um knowing things just right people praying and saying by the way I'm asking them to pray and by the way I'm asking them to pray a ring like the rings in a pond yeah. when a stone goes like just going all around <laughs> praying for Caleb it's oh, I know. Yeah. 
it was a supernatural thing. And I still, when I talk, when I go and share, like if I'm ever sharing, that's one of the main things I talk about is prayer, the power of prayer, because I didn't even like, it was so, because we were, you know, they were rallying this prayer support. And so we knew it was happening, but then we had no idea the force of really the army, if you want to say that had been gathered in behalf of Caleb. And that's where I, I talk about like Trey's story and Caleb's story are very much together because I really believe that one of the reasons so many people were praying is because of Trey's story. Um, we had a lot of people that followed us through that whole journey. And so they were just almost standing ready to intercede, you know, on our behalf and just, um, so, you know, I, I do think that that was one of the ma major reasons that it spread to so many so quickly too. And uh, so, yes, and I'm like, so we're like 24 hours in and he's still all hooked up and they're in and out and they're, you know, they're more thinking like is, you know, they put that drain in his head thinking they're going to have to um, drain off a ton of fluid, just keep it from swelling, swelling, swelling. And they never even had to open the drain. So they never even used it. They put it in his head, but they didn't, they didn't never use it because his pressures never went that high. So, um, so that was, but he still, of course, had all these other, I mean, there was a little internal bleeding. They had to fix that. There was nothing significant, significant, but you know, he's, he's on a ventilator. He's, you know, that there's many other little things, little, but yet significant things that are also going on with him. So they're trying to basically get a stable picture or stable patient, I guess. And so uh, that's when Blake Gideon, um, he's the pastor of I think first Baptist Edmund or anyway, he's an acquaintance of Jeremy's, but not like at this point, Jeremy knows him, but not like where they're super close friends or anything. But so to get a phone call from him right then was a little unusual, probably for the circumstance, but he called and he was like, Jeremy, <laughs> I know this is, you know, I know this timing is whatever. And I know you're in the middle of all of this and it's very touch and go, but I have this word from the Lord that I must bring to you. I can't, he will not let me you know, rest until I do it. And I just, I have to at least offer to come and tell you, you know? And so Jeremy's like, well, you know, that's, you know, okay, come on. So he comes up there at a time that it's pretty chaotic and, you know, they're still, you know, so there's, they don't even really allow, I mean, they don't allow other people in, you know, Jeremy and I are in there, but he comes up and he's there and he's on crutches actually, cause he's recently injured something. And so he came in and he opened up the Bible and he read to us from Acts. It's this, the story of Paul's shipwreck. Like it's such a, it's not a passage you would normally like open up to tell somebody something comforting. I know. <laughs> I mean, if that makes sense, it's not like something, a go-to verse, like, you know, right. so um, it's this passage of the shipwreck and it's going through and it's talking about how um, they had given up and they were just starting to throw everything overboard and they had lost all hope. And then Paul says, do not lose heart because there will be no loss of life among you. Like it was kind of that thing, except the ship, like it was right. that story. And so he said, I know this is strange, but this is, you know, there's only been one other time in my ministry that I felt so strongly that God had given me a word. And I feel like, you know, this is for you and, and for Caleb and there will be no loss of life, you know, here he's going to, 
you know? And so we were like, again, that just, I mean, it just seems like God is sending us, you know, people like messages, you know, through these different people. And so we are holding on to that. We, you know, we, uh, we continually just kept the Bible open to that passage in his, in his room. And so I think it was around that time where I was starting to feel pretty, um, just, I don't know, supernaturally strong, I guess would be the word for it because, uh, I should be falling apart in this moment, but I'm actually feeling stronger, (laughs) you know, like, I feel like I'm getting stronger instead of getting, you know? And so I, I remember starting to just write everything down. Cause I was like, Jeremy, I really believe that God is telling me that he's going to use this, like that he's going to use this for ways we can't imagine. Like it's going to be, he's going to give Caleb a story that we're going to like. And so I just like, I'm going to write everything. I'm just going to start writing everything down. So I kind of went back from the beginning and I just started, (laughs) you know, putting everything down. And so, um, then I started looking at the Facebook page that Jeremy had made because people were asking a lot of questions and I'm like, I pull it up and I was like, there are 30,000 people <laughs> like after three days, there are 30,000 people that are like praying and following Caleb. And I, I was like, that can't be like an accurate thing. I don't know 30,000 people, you know? <laughs> and so it was just a combination of things like that. And then the news stations kept wanting to interview us. And we're like, why, why are they wanting to do that? Like kids getting wrecks all the time. And, you know, Caleb is not out of, out of the woods, as far as the doctors go. I mean, like, he's still like, they're still like, number one, it's every like, Oh, he made it 48 hours. Oh, he's, you know, I don't know if he'll make it. And then it became more like, well, he's this on the Glasgow coma scale. And so he's a three and like the three is like brain dead basically. So you have to get up to like a 12. So as far as like the odds and stuff, it's like, you know, if usually if you come in at a three on the Glasgow coma scale, then you remain a vegetable for your life, however long that may be. So it's like, if you Google that stuff, you can just, you'll immediately see like, okay, this is what we're looking at. Like, he's not going to, he, he's probably not going to regain consciousness, but if he does, because 90% of people with this injury don't regain consciousness, but if he does, he probably won't eat or talk or walk or be able to interact. You know, it was just, it was that story. So, you know, you have this all going on, like the news people wanting to, so you have these opportunities to just share um, with them and, and then, uh, are just trying to, you know, keep <laughs> doing like, what do we need to do next? What do we need to do next? But at the same time, you feel like this platform is still already growing, even though you're like, I don't really know or understand what's, you know, where this is going or what's going to happen because it's a slow process. And like, he's basically in a coma for two months and showing, you know, like maybe little, maybe that was a response. Maybe it wasn't it was very just, and so we were at OU, um, trauma for a month, I guess, um, until like Jan- January, uh, mid January. And that's when we transferred to Craig hospital. And that was kind of a miraculous thing as well, because you, in order to get admitted there, you have to be showing some, some pretty consistent responses. And Caleb was kind of, <laughs> 
I mean, he was just tricky. Like he was uh, unique in just the way he was functioning. And, and so I don't feel like he really qualified, but somehow we were able to get him in. And then I still remember like the insurance kept trying to kick us out, but the doctor that was the head of his care, like initially when Caleb came in, he, he kind of, he held his eyes open and he said, Caleb, look left. And Caleb like totally did that. Like he looked left and he said, Caleb, look right. And he moved his, just his eyeballs and he looked right. And he was like, he looked at the nurse and he was like, did you see that? And she's like, yeah. And then he did it again. Like he did it twice, like left and right. And so this doctor had seen that and was like, there is like someone <laughs> like he's in there, like, you yeah. know, and so, um, he kind of, that caused him to advocate for us, I think more, but it's funny because like all of those nurses and doctors up there, they would, we became really close to a lot of them and they would tell, tell you, like, they've told us since then, like when we came in there, cause we were very like, <laughs> I mean, we were just very positive and peaceful because we really believed that at some point God was going to wake Caleb up and he was going to, you know, restore things. And so uh, they thought we were in complete denial and our room was like the crazy room blaring all the worship music and having scripture all over the walls. And like, we would give things to our, down our hall. Like we would just give people, like, <laughs> it was almost like we were just not focused on the, you know, that we just were focused on. It's like, I, when I share about the prayer, I, I often talk about my perspective through the whole thing, because when I, when I first started, I was very much like, woe is me. Like, this cannot be happening to me. This is not fair. You know, I am like, I, I really do in that vehicle. When I was on the way to the ER, I remember thinking, God, if, if, if you're taking him, go ahead and take me to, I'm like, I'm done. Like, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to walk through this again. And so it was that kind of mindset. And then the prayer and like praying and the more that I prayed, yes, at first my prayers were pretty selfish and I just wanted Caleb restored and I just wanted him to play basketball again. And I just wanted to, you know, be normal, whatever that is. But, um, I just was praying like, that's what I want, but it's amazing how that shifted from those, those very temporary focuses, I would say. Um, cause I've, I've said and thought over and over again, like if, if God were to completely restore Caleb physically hundred percent, even to where he could dunk a basketball, that is still a temporary thing. Like he is, <laughs> that healing is temporary. Like that is not an eternal thing. And so starting to pray more for the eternal things and like, actually God, what, you know, what are you going to do with this and how do you want to use us? And like, how can this bring you glory and how can we reach people? And, you know, that became more of the focus, which was a shift of like, I feel like God totally taking your own and aligning you with his vision, like what he sees and what's important to him. And that's a supernatural thing. Cause that's not something that happens <laughs> as a human mom. You know, that's not something that would be natural to me. That's definitely, um, a God thing. Um, but anyway, so as, as we really were focused on that, all the little things that he was doing, we were just, it was really just a one day at a time. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen today, but I know that God's got this, like he's in control and, um, you know, he's got a plan and there's going to be, you know, a purpose. And so 
it's like that day that it actually happened, which was a very sudden thing. Like Caleb went from, cause it's hard for me to explain to you. You probably have to look back on all the videos and pictures of how Caleb was. And like, you're con- in these levels of consciousness where he's there, but he's not there. And he has no real control over his body. And it's just all these, uh, gosh, I can't even remember exactly what they're called. Brainstorming. The brainstorming was a huge thing, just sweating and heart rate going from like 33 to like 173. I mean, it's just crazy stuff in his body. And so it was a lot of that kind of just, it was stressful. Like it was really, really stressful. And and we had, we moved our whole family out to Craig. So we had Luke and Addie and they were very little at that time. They were in the apartment. So and like, you, Emily, uh, can I ask you a question? Where is Craig hospital in Denver, Colorado? So you picked your whole family up and went to Denver. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And the reason why is because like they had already been like, as we were at the OU, like they had had to be everywhere, you know, just with different people. And I was like, we have to do this together. And honestly, I was like, Caleb was so close to Luke and Addie, like just having them around could just help him, you know, their presence. And so anyway, we went there for five months. And so my oldest daughter, Brittany will talk about this. And I feel so, because it's so hard. Like you're so focused on this one child of yours. That's, you know, in this fight and so your other kids are just trying to survive and you don't really have anything for them. You know, it's like, I'm so, so like they are having to rise up in all these different ways. And, you know, she's the oldest. And so we talk about how you're at the apartment and you've got Luke and Addie and you're caring, caring for these like little ones that are like one and two years old. And then you go to the hospital and Caleb is, there's no peace there because he's just, it's such, so there was no, like, you know, she'd say, I would just go to the bathroom and cry, like, just because, but then also our family during that time, we went through the Bible study, experiencing God together. And I would say also, it was one of the times that we were like, really just growing together, you know, so the circumstances were really hard, but at the same time, it was such a time of growing. And so anyway, it was, it was five months of the, probably the hardest because that was Caleb coming out of the coma, him figuring out like, oh my goodness, like he, he really can't, he's, he's like a baby learning to do everything again, like trying to learn to speak, trying to learn to eat, um, trying to walk. I mean, all of that was just so overwhelming because it seemed so like such a impossible task, you know? Um, but that's also when, you know, the, the news came and followed us out there and did, you know, more follow-up stories on him. And he, he was able, I mean, we were able to be a witness in that way. And so there were a lot of really good things out there. And so he basically, um, he, he woke up that day. It, he, he had been, they'd been asking him questions. Like if you get, I, there's like tw- 24 out of 24 is a perfect score or to be able to do these things. And so far he had been like three out of 24 every time. And then he went from all of a sudden 23 out of 24, literally in a 24 hour period, like crazy. And so this, they were, our therapists were like shocked. 
So his speech therapist, like followed us back to the room and she started asking him like flip chart questions. And so Caleb could answer all of the things. Like he knew he was in Denver, Colorado. He knew he had been in a car accident. Um, he knew what year it was. I mean, like it was, and you were like, so obviously he was somehow retaining, like he doesn't really remember any of that, but like the things that we would tell him and talk to him about, he was retaining some of that. Wow. And so that was just like a day of whoa. And so everybody was just like, okay. So then from then on, he just made so much progress there because it was quick. It was like, wow. Like we were hoping maybe he could go home on like a puree diet, but then like a week later, no, he's actually eating steak already. You know, it was like, boom, like just wow. really. <laughs> so that was just, and Caleb woke up really it was unusual because they prepared us for all this. Like if he does start to emerge out of this, then he's probably going to be violent. He's probably like, we saw it in our midst. Like there were people coming out of brain injury that had to have people like physically with them to restrain them. And like all of this, cause they were violent. They would just cuss and <laughs> like scream. And so all of this, but Caleb did not have any of that. Like he woke up. So like, just very, um, kind and gentle and like funny and just soft, <laughs> I guess it were, but just very, you know, and some of the first things he would say were like, he was very concerned for his brother, Clayton, which Clayton's a miracle too. And he gets overlooked in this, but like he was right next to Caleb and like those, those doctors in the ER were like, based on this accident, like the, the guy who came and worked the scene, who was like the EMS guy said in 25 years, he's never seen anybody survive something like that. And that Clayton should be the one with the severe, horrible brain injury. And Caleb should be like, there shouldn't be any part of him really <laughs> to look. So it was, so Clayton is a miracle too. And, um, he just had a mild concussion, but C Caleb was very concerned about Clayton and just the truck driver, even like, I want, I want to tell the truck driver, it's okay. It's not his fault. Like he just came out very, um, and of course, like just all the therapists were like, just kind of amazed by his temperament and just, um, and he came out really like talking about the Lord and just very much. And so it's been, it's been amazing because from there to now it's been what almost four years to watch the progression in Caleb, because I would say he's never really had a time where he has been depressed or, you know, like there was a time where I remember I need, I would go into his room. He'd, he'd call me and say, mom, I need you to encourage me. Like, but he's never had to be on any medicine or anything because he's just been content kind of in where he is. But like, so this was a big game changing moment. I feel like where the Lord just also directed us, but there was a time where he was a little bit like, I don't understand why God just won't fully heal me. You know, like he's brought me this far. Like, why doesn't he just restore me completely? You know, like where I can walk and run. I mean, that would bring him the most glory. Like people would be able to see that, you know? And so there was a time where he really struggled with that. Like, why can't I do what I used to do? Cause it was a senior year of high school and, you know, he can't do any of that. And so, um, it's just, I was like, you know, Caleb, I think what you need to do is just fill your mind with as much truth as you can. Like, I think you need to memorize as much of the Bible as you can. And with a brain injury, your short-term memory is supposed to be pretty bad, you know, like pretty pathetic, but he just started reading 
Philippians. And I think Paul is somebody he can really relate to just because of his life. And so he started memorizing Philippians. Well, he has all of Philippians memorized now and more like he's, Oh, oh my yeah. goodness. Yes. He's got the, he had the whole thing memorized probably in a few months. So he's memorized other passages. I've, if you, if you're ever in our house, you can hear him just like quoting over and over different passages of scripture. But when he started doing that, it was amazing how I, I've not, since he started doing that and just filling his mind with that, I, I don't think I've ever heard him complain again about like, why is God not doing this? He has only been like, you know what, this is how God has me. And it's because this is how he can use me. And I think it's true. Like, I do think that people are more like they listen more to Caleb and are drawn, even almost drawn to him more because he's not perfect. And like, he can't speak perfectly. And he has kind of a, um, like people automatically their walls go down when he approaches them. Like he can approach anyone and now not everybody's receptive, but most people are receptive and they, it takes them a minute, but like, they're very open to talking to him. And usually they leave, you know, I feel like they leave and he's lifted them somehow. And so his big thing right now is every single person, like if he were here, he would be telling you number one, that you're beautiful. <laughs> so he would, he would want you to know that you're beautiful. And then he would want you to know that Jesus loves you. And so he tells every single person that if he's in the airport, if he's in a restaurant, um, he will go to every table. <laughs> he will go to every person. It makes for some, like uh, my personality. I am a little, like, sometimes I'm like, uh, I'm going to leave the room because I <laughs> like, I can't watch I'm I'm nervous about, you know, how this is going to be. <laughs> But, um, he is just, that's who he is. Like, he really believes that the only reason he's still here because he shouldn't be is because he's supposed to, you know, share with people, um, about Jesus and about, you know, his, his story, you know, but God. And so that's really his, his mission. So he loves it. He, he just, and he gets to go and speak, um, a lot and he just, he's always like, when's my, you know, when's my next time. And like I said, he doesn't prepare. <laughs> he doesn't like, what am I going to say? They just go and, and they just share. And it's just amazing to see, like they've been to some of the smallest, tiniest places in Oklahoma that I didn't even know existed. And they'll drive out there and be like, uh, why are we here? And then like <laughs> people will show up and like, he calls me like 20 people got saved <laughs> like tonight. And I'm like, wow. Like they didn't even know 20 people were going to you know, be alive out in that area. So it's like, <laughs> does Jeremy travel with him on these trips? He does. Okay. He does. Um, sometimes a couple of times Caleb's gone with Jeremy's dad. Maybe it, it has been hard for Jeremy to figure out the balance of, cause you have this Caleb and COVID, you know, kind of slowed down some of that. But then again, there were some areas that it didn't slow down. Like we ended up in the panhandle a lot <laughs> during COVID because they were like, you know, we're, they don't even like, you know, really worry about that very much. And so he went there a lot. And so it's just been, I think he's, uh, he's scheduled to, I think he's scheduled to hit some of the, like Shane Pruitt has him doing some of the bigger events. And so we don't know, like, we're kind of just surrendering all that. Like, cause I think about, I start to worry about what is Caleb going to do like with his life and, you know, and, and then I'm like, I can't believe I would even worry about that. I mean, he's here. God has him here. I'm pretty sure that he's got him, got it covered, you know, for him. And so, um, it's just a matter of surrendering that and like, 
you know, I still pray for physical restoration and I still pray for deepening and I want him to have relationships. And I think about, uh, could there be a young lady that God would prepare in a really special way, you know, to be with him. So I pray for all of those things, but at the same time, I just kind of hold that with open hands and just, you know, take it one day at a time. Um, we, uh, we, we pray for, there's a, there, a, a one group that had kind of proposed a hashtag, but God movement that was like geared toward young people and college campuses and revival and just for Caleb to inspire others to share their God, but God stories, you know, like his, but God story being kind of a catalyst for that. And so that's something that we were like, Oh, we would think that would be so awesome if God used Caleb somehow to start a movement like that. So we pray for those kinds of things and um, just kind of take it a day at a time and see, you know, where God is going to, is going to take him. So it's kind of just a, <laughs> he's at Rose state right now. Um, you know, his second year there. So he's finishing up associate's degree there. Um, and by him, I mean, we are doing that. He and I, <laughs> so, but he to go. helping a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah. He loves to go to class and socialize. And like I said, witness to everybody. And so I kind of feel like I'm his partner, like ministry partner. So like, I'm like, I'll handle the, the grunt work. <laughs> And so you can go, that can be your mission field. So, um, so he just likes having the college experience, but I don't think he's going to necessarily use any of that, but, but, you know, God, God may have something, um, for that too. So I don't know, but Emily, I, I just feel like this story is so much deeper and so much wider than I can even grasp. And I just feel like the words, but God are just going to carry with me even deeper now, just realizing I can see your example, your family's example, trusting in the Lord in the midst of very difficult circumstances and seeing God walk you through. I just can't thank you enough. I just am so grateful that you took the time to go deep and and to go to the emotional places you did. And thank you so much for everything you shared with us. Well, you're welcome. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you for being raw and honest and just open about all of it. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you all for having me. And so I'll be interested to see what the edited version <laughs> looks like. So, and, and edit out those laughs of mine too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just thank you so much. and. May God bless you and your family in ways that are out of our minds to even comprehend. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for being a part of this, listening in to such an amazing conversation. We're so glad you're here today. We're so glad that you could hear Emily's story of faith, even in the midst of such difficulty. The thing that I am clinging to from this amazing testimony is but God no matter what's going on in my life no matter what's going on all around me no matter what the storm is I can remember from the example of Caleb Freeman but God he's the one that has the final say he is the one sovereign over everything and also Emily's theme of just one day at a time lots of times I think that really would help all of us (laughs) just keep in mind just do one day at a time 
And I really appreciated the, uh, the comment about never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. Sometimes when we are in a dark place, it's easy to forget things that we were taught in the light. So we need to always keep those at the forefront, even when things don't feel like it, that there's always light and hope. Please remember to rate and review and subscribe, and we will see you here. You will hear from us again in about two weeks. Thanks again. Uh -huh.